Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, everyone. Uh, take two on on uh, you know not rec- not not making the show the way we're supposed to make it. We're all sitting there, all tight, smelling each other across the podcast studio table. We're remote again, uh, so quarantine episode part two. But I do got a piece of good news. Um, I just got an email about this this morning that. I don't know if you know, but uh, the, the the Trump administration has done a number of things around access enhancement, um, and that could mean a thousand things, right? Uh, access is real popular. All people that hunt and fish and recreate are like the idea of access or voice the idea that they like access, and access can mean different stuff, right? Um, so I've heard people take the access argument, being like access enhancement. And use that as a way to say, we should carve up our wilderness areas with roads in order to give us more access in our trucks. So you, you can take it different ways. But this is like good access where they got a plan. They're just rolling out a new plan here, which would, uh, it's a proposal, which would expand hunting and fishing opportunities across more than 2.3 million acres at 97 national wildlife refuges. So there's there's always been a lot of refuges where you can hunt and fish or hunt and or fish. And they're trying to roll that out and also rolling out, pushing to roll out 
hunting and fishing opportunities on some fish hatchery lands. So this is just like taking existing lands and getting it so you can use it for, you know, pursuing your activities in places where maybe you can't, but it doesn't really make sense why you're not allowed to. Uh, what they, what they look at is they look at distinct new hunting and fishing opportunities. And the way they define this is it'd be a species at a field station in a state. So for instance, if you opened up, um, you had a refuge and a refuge had a bunch of largemouth bass on it and you opened up the refuge in Delaware for largemouth bass, you're creating a distinct new hunting and fishing opportunity, meaning uh, at a specific refuge, you're allowed to catch a specific fish in a specific state. They're projecting that this proposed rule would create 900 distinct new hunting and fishing opportunities. Wow. Uh, on top of last year, they you know we had access expansion of 1.4 million acres. Now I'll be the last guy to say that that everything that's uh, you know every administration's got its things it does right and its things it doesn't do right. But I, I in, in terms of access enhancement in making areas that you previously weren't able to hunt and fish open for hunting and fishing, these guys are doing a pretty good job there. Uh, we got a guy. I just got a bumper sticker. A guy sent me that says ice fishing is not a crime and it's meant to look like the, yeah. Do you remember the skateboarding is not a crime? <clears throat> Buddy, my, uh, bumper <clears throat> my mom's, uh, Buick Skylark of era, probably like 88 had one of those stickers on it. Yeah. This guy, he's connected somehow to Harvard university and he invited us on our live tour. Our dates keep getting postponed because of COVID-19, uh, he had he already had a ticket to go to our show and uh our, our our show in the Boston area and he was inviting us that we could come tour Harvard, but he was pointing out that he had to make ice fishing is not a crime bumper stickers because ice fishing is so unfamiliar to the people in his area that when people see someone out on the ice, they their first impulse is to call the police. <laughs> Which I, I haven't dug into it much, but I thought it was funny. I almost put it on the, uh, I was going to put it on the podcast studio window, but we're not there. So I'm never able to do that. I don't know what the hell to do with the thing now. Uh, follow up on another question. Oh, go ahead, Yanni. I was going to say mine's uh, on my freezer. That's where my sticker collection lives these days. On your home freezer? Yeah. You know, maybe that's what I'll do because no one's going to take your damn freezer from you. This hasn't gone that far yet. Uh, another quick follow-up on a, a past conversation. We were talking about... Yanni, who are we talking about? A dude told a story about his dad's blood transfusion. And uh, mm. I was I was incredulous about how could you give someone 14 units of blood right. when the human body... Like, your body only holds 8 to 12, quote, units yep. of blood. So how do you give someone 14 units of blood? Mm -hmm. It's like you'd over, they'd overflow and it all run out their ears. Yeah. Which is, are you, are you talking, cause a couple of people wrote, wrote in to uh, clarify that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what was the, there was a good analogy that someone used. Well, a, a, a surgeon, a surgeon wrote in, he's done, he's done a lot of trauma surgery. And, uh, he was saying it's real common to use that much blood and they call, they use what's called a massive transfusion protocol. 
And he said they keep bringing in little red Coleman Lunchable type coolers containing a combination of packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, and platelets. There's six units in a cooler. And you just keep pumping those things in until the bleeding stops. And he says his personal high, he had a patient. The guy actually lived. He ran, uh, he'd been shot in the gut with a 45. And the surgeon ran 72 units of blood through that dude. Whoa. He had injuries to his aorta, his inferior vena cava, which I don't know what that is, his left renal artery, which I don't know what that is, plus some other stuff. The whole time they're trying to fix him, um, like when you take your, uh, you'd have to like take a valve off or whatever on blood vessels. And uh, yeah, dude bled so much that they gave him, what is it again? Your body holds eight to twelve, and they ran seventy-two units of blood through the dude after getting shot by a forty-five. A doctor named Sam out of Amarillo, Texas. This other guy wrote it on the blood thing. He had this to say. He talks about how he's a real, uh, he's a good blood donor, and he's got a kid uh, who has Down syndrome, and they had uh, some other complicating health problems, and the kid had to have an open heart surgery. The He's got good insurance. We said the itemized bill for the surgery came out to $200,000. And he went through the itemized list, and they had a single unit of blood ready for him in a cooler, a little lunch cooler, igloo lunch cooler, that the kid never even needed because the surgery went well, apparently. But on the itemized list, that unit of blood that you donate, when you need it back, it comes at a price tag of 827 bucks. I was just wondering how much one of those was. Yeah. The uh, a couple more good things. We were complaining. I think like Cal was complaining about this. Like it, with all these questions going on right now, like what's an essential service and not an essential service? And um, we were talking about how could it be that you could close like a fishing access site down, but a liquor store could remain open? Like who determines what's serious or what's essential and how can booze be essential? And a social worker wrote in, and he says he works in addiction services. He says when people detox, it could be real ugly. And detoxing often requires a hospital bed. With anticipations of hospital beds being in short supply, we don't want folks detoxing right now. Right now, we're focusing on harm reduction. Basically, trying to help people stay safe while drinking. They'll sort out the addiction issues down the road. Um, he also pointed out a revenue issue in trying to minimize the economic chaos, right? Uh, you know, a lot of restaurants, alcohol pays the bills, or I'm sorry, you know, um, beer pays the bills, liquors allows to stay open, or whatever that mantra is in the restaurant business, meaning. Uh, restaurants without alcohol sales business gets very difficult. Um, and in trying to minimize the, the chaos here, it can be helpful to allow res, uh, restaurants to do to go booze and things in order to help them stay solvent, right? And keep food flowing um, in, a, in a time of like very stressed situations. Yeah, we heard about that too, right? Because I think Cal had included that in his his 
statement there that one of the states had thrown that in and he didn't understand why, but obviously that's why. Yeah, and this dude, yeah, and this dude was writing in about that. Uh, the ongoing debate. Oh, I'll, I'll interrupt these updates here to tell what we have on uh, the beautiful and lovely Evan Haffer, right? Is that how you say it? Hafer. 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 It's close enough. Yeah. From Black Rifle Coffee Company. We met. Uh, I, I was at the, I was emceeing. Turns out I don't feel like, and, and my wife pointed this out to me, that I'm not a, um, she feels that I'm not going to make it into the MC Hall of Fame. Um, she, everyone has their talents, she pointed out, uh, but she doesn't know that I'm a, a, a gifted MC. I'm like a functional MC. Like I get it done, but I, but I get it done without a lot of fanfare. Anyways, I was emceeing at the National Wild Turkey Convention or the you know the the National Wild Turkey annual big blowout convention in Nashville, and I met Av- Avin Hafer there, and then we became kind of like email friends recently. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a great that was the first time I've been out there, so that was a that was a great event. It was huge. I didn't realize it was that big. No, it's huge. So. Hey, uh, th- did you take in any of my emceeing, or were you just backstage and doing stuff the whole time? No, I was I was down in the crowd. I was taking in the MC. I thought did, you uh, did you think did you think to yourself, man, uh, this young man, this young man really has emceeing dialed. Yeah, I, I was. That's exactly what I was thinking the entire time. <laughs> I didn't I didn't think about much else. I was just this is impressive. Hey, <laughs> what, you, Steve, what would your wife say your weak points were? Your did, MC weak points that I didn't do a lot of the um, I, I didn't do a lot of the really sort of corny drumming up you know like uh, drumming up enthusiasms it was more Mm. i i did more of it was it felt more transactional (laughs) that was her that was her takeaway uh we have evan we have now that we brought you into the conversation here we're we're doing our rundowns yeah we we have an ongoing debate and you probably have some feedback on this because you you spent time in the special forces and we'll talk about that but we have an ongoing debate about whether or not a, a real man or a real woman can wear flip-flops. Like, because my buddy Ronnie Bame feels that right. you're not ready to defend your family hmm. in flip-flops and feels that, like, he's like, when I have flip-flops on, I ask myself, well, what if there is a volcano? Right. What will that mean for my feet? What will that mean for my family? And so we have a lot of people write in. Like we had a guy one time, uh, his wife got assaulted by a rat and he was able to kill the rat with a flip-flop. Right. But because he was he could get it off quick. Yeah. This guy just got caught up in the uh, earthquake there. He's in Boise. Got caught up in the earthquake. He was running around his house in his flip-flops. And he got to worrying about the structural integrity of his house and went to book outside. And on his way outside, tripped in his flip-flops. And then made it outside, and here he is. The world's falling apart. He thinks his house is going to fall down. You know, the uh, Yellowstone volcano might erupt, and yeah. he's outside in his flip flops now. And it made him think that this is not an appropriate footwear for American living. Hmm. I, I should put, I should put I should put it to you. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with that. I know a couple guys out there that uh, they always point out that. The Afghans have been fighting wars and in, in flip flops for you know, since the eighties. So when when they talk about combat footwear, they think about the Afghans fighting, you know, the Soviets, and you know, you've got all these other 
factions in Central Asia that have been fighting wars for decades and flip-flops. So they're always like, it's combat footwear. It's kind of a joke, actually. <laughs> it's, kind, it's kind of a joke. Uh, it's interesting that you, you brought that up uh, because it is a debate even internally. Whereas if I wear a flip-flop, I'm, I'm typically, I, I know that it's, it's because I'm in a boat or I'm, I'm in the water and it's recreation time. I don't typically wear them as casual footwear, but my partner, Matt, he wears them every day. I've actually barely seen him wear shoes. So it's an internal debate over here too. Do you guys have a company policy? No, no flip-flops? No, we have a company policy, which is um, carry your firearm most of the time, but that's typically the only company <laughs> policy we really, really <laughs> adhere to. And if you want to do it in flip-flops, that's your yeah, business. You, you, you do it, you know, and I think most guys are more concerned with, uh, you know, how, how, how fast can they react. And so they, they try to become as proficient as they can in their footwear. That's kind of their mentality. So they wear them all the time just to, just to, <laughs> just to stay become, well, to yeah. stay trained, to stay trained, to up. stay trained. Yeah. To stay trained, stay in the, stay in the mindset. Yeah. Stay in the mindset. Uh, another thing, uh, we had, we recently had the Turkey doctor on, um, that's a great show. What was the name of that episode? Do you guys remember? Uh, gobble your ass off. Was that it? Oh, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Go back and listen to that one. After that, Jared Oakley, our, uh, he's kind of a friend of the show. His brother, uh, he's a conservationist, works with mule deer. His brother works with um, Mexican gray wolves. Anyways, he wrote in. He was talking about hunting in the Black Hills of Wyoming. He found what looked like a bear shit, like a large boar, not B-O-A-R, like not like a large boar male. I mean, large boar, like large caliber. B-O-R-E. Yeah, large caliber bear shit. And he got to inspecting it, as one does, and saw that it had a white coating on it. That white, frosty coating that you see on bird shit, which I always think resembles that uh, the white mold that you get on good uh, Italian salami. But he says the biggest bird shit he'd ever seen. Um, he got to talking later to an expert on turkeys. I don't know if you guys ever heard of John Hutto. I, think, I don't know how he pronounces his name. Hutto, I think. He's that guy that lived with turkeys. He raised up turkeys and learned how to communicate with them. And he talks about that he believes there are, it really changed his viewpoint on hunting a fair bit. I think right now he's living with some mule deer, but he lived with turkeys for a long time and learned. He, I, he, he feels that he's identified 27 vocalizations that turkeys make or something. Uh, and he's got a lot of interesting stories about turkeys, but learned to communicate with them and, uh, you kind of got to watch his own story of it. H U T T O. Interestingly, he's married to the singer Rita Coolidge. But he he was uh, Jared Oakleaf was asking him about these giant turkeys, which he called ass goblins. And it says that when a hen's sitting on her nest, it seems that they don't want to defecate. I should ask the turkey doctor about this, but they don't want to defecate near their nest because it increases the odor, right? And it could be attractive. It could attract predators. So they build up these giant deuces and then wander off and drop these giant deuces, which are the size of bear scats. What do you think of that, Giannis? It might be Joe Hutto. That's what I said, right? Oh, I thought you were saying John. My bad. Oh, yeah, I could have said that. Jared Oakleaf was the guy, our friend that wrote yeah. in. J- yeah, Joe Hutto. I'm sorry. Um, sounds very possible. 
Sounds like what I would do if I was sitting on a nest hiding, not wanting to go off just to drop a deuce, stay low key, hold hold it for a few days. Yeah. Another, uh, we talked about this before, but uh, another word for that would be to take a growler. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, uh, another quick uh, quick note before we get started here. Oh, two things. And, and th- one of these is going to be great for Evan. Uh, the first one, I don't know if this is up Evan's alley or not, but you know, we talk a lot about Bergman's rule or Bergman's principle. Uh, Phil, the engineer, you know what Bergman's principle is? I don't know. So when you're when you're working on the shows, you don't you're not actually listening to anything anybody's saying. <laughs> I, I think that Bergman's maybe hasn't been mentioned since Phil started. Dude, it's the main thing I, I talk I, about. I do not I do not recall ever hearing about it. Okay, so maybe you're right, or maybe Yanni uh, maybe Yanni's right. For anyone who's ever wondered, why is it that white-tailed deer in Florida are real dinky, and white-tailed deer in say Alberta have big huge bodies? Um, why is that? Well, Bergman's rule is this thing, or Bergman's principle is this thing that mammals, when you look at a mammal's range, okay, and you imagine its range from north to south, when you look at an animal's range, you will find that within its range, it will tend to have a bigger body the more north you go. Hmm. So within its range, smaller specimens live in the south, larger specimens live in the north. We're talking about body size here. Uh, it's believed, like a way to explain this, is that it has to do with heat retention and heat dissipation, being that the a, let's say this, a 200-pound person has less surface area. So a 200-pound human has less surface area than a 150-pound human, um, meaning... The, the measurement of your body that's exposed to the air relative to the mass of the body is less. So those bodies are better able to retain body heat. When in the South, where it's hotter, smaller bodies tend to have greater surface area. So they have greater ability to shed, uh, greater ability to shed body heat. And someone pointed out, as much as I like talking about Bergman's rule, he pointed out there's also Allen's rule. And Allen's rule is interesting. I had never heard of it. It's the animals have longer extremities in hot climates. You take the antelope jackrabbit and think about that. And what's interesting there is it points out that uh, I think it's true that the mule deer defies Bergman's rule. That the mule deer, there's a lot of confusion where you have some larger specimens of mule deer in more southerly latitudes. And so it's an exception to Bergman's rule. But I think when you look at their ears, I think that they adhere to Allen's rule um, in terms of length of ear and how much you're putting out for heat dissipation. Hmm. Last one. This is one where Evan can feel helpful. We had a debate. Uh, we've been having a debate. It goes on uh, where we're talking about accidental discharges. And Evan, if I'm not mistaken, in the military, they train you up. I know in the Marines, they pound it into your head. Oh, yeah. There's no such thing as an accidental discharge. No, it's negligent discharge. Okay. A, guy's cha- mm-hmm. a guy decided to challenge that. And he's, yeah. from, the, he's from the Air Force. Well, of course. 
Okay. Well, hear him out. <laughs> hear him out. Okay. They're on a firing line. Okay. They were getting ready to deploy, and they were going through some tactical exercises. They were firing M16s, and okay. they had fired dozens of rounds in the mm-hmm. last few minutes. Barrels are hot. Yep. They finish another round of shooting, but still have loaded rifles. The range instructor tells everyone to point the rifles down to the ground and downrange. But one mm-hmm. guy didn't get the downrange part and only got the down to the ground part. All of a sudden, blouch! Gunshot goes off. Right. He looks over and a guy just falls down in a way that he thinks the guy just somehow killed himself or killed his, someone killed their neighbor. Right. But it turns out he'd only shot himself in the foot and then and then instantly passed out is why he looked like he was <laughs> why he went down so hard. Right. Everybody laid their weapons on the ground to give first aid. And his rifle, which was now a few feet away on the gravel and pointed downrange, went off again mm-hmm. on its own. And pointed out that it turns out the weapon had cooked off around. The barrel got so hot, it ignited the round without trigger pull. Right. They found the cartridges. They did not have dents in the primer. Hmm. But there was a bulge where it had been pressed against the bolt. Right. The pressure of the round going off on its own had pushed the brass into the hole on the bolt where the firing pin lives. So actually like an inverted dimple. Mm -hmm. So he says, basically, put that in your pipe and smoke it when it comes down to negligent discharge. But he points this out, just reminds you, watch where your muzzles are pointed at all times. Yeah, kind of, right? So (laughs) uh, uh, there's something called a negligent discharge. And obviously uh, when you don't point your weapon at anything, you don't seek to destroy, right? That's, That's one of the rules of handling a firearm. So, you never point it in anywhere but a safe direction. So he was false in that because he's pointing it at his foot. Uh, two, I've I've heated a lot of barrels in my day. Like I've, I've sent hundreds of thousands of rounds downrange, and um, that doesn't happen very often. However, it is something that, as the training NCO, the guy that the non commissioned officer that's in charge of your block of training. They have to be conscious of how many rounds are being put through the barrels and what time frame. So I would say the negligent discharge wasn't Ah. actually owned by the shooter. It was owned, and the responsibility of that was on the guy that was in charge of the range. That's That's where I would say that was a negligent discharge. But the ownership is passed on to the person that's in charge and allowing the weapons to get too hot. Because that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, you know, I feel like I editorialized a little bit now that I'm looking mm-hmm. at his email more carefully. He, I should point out in this gentleman's defense, yeah. he did not say put that in your pipe and smoke it. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> he just kind of says like, "Watch where your gun's pointing." Right. Well, put that round in your foot. I don't know if that works, but it's. Probably not. Maybe in that circumstance, you could He say. also said the Air Force ended up pulling lots of ammo out of operation due to the incident. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So, I mean, all the ammo, all the barrels and things like that. Now, 
all these things can, inspections can fail. So depending on how the equipment was, the, 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 the prior maintenance of the equipment, the inspections of the equipment, you know, where were the rounds coming from? Were they, you know, depending, there's a lot of variables there, but ultimately don't point your weapon at anything you don't seek to destroy and don't heat up your rifles to the point they're going to cook off rounds. It's, it's, it's pretty, I, I've literally put on hundreds of courses with uh, thousands of guys at this point, and I've not cooked off a round on a range with a rifle. But Evan, you're familiar with this thing called cooking off a round. Oh yeah. 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 We're when your barrels are too hot, what'll happen is a lot of these and depending, right? We're cause if you're using suppressors or not using suppressors, your barrels will get really hot and they'll start to smoke. So it's not the smoke from the discharge of the, the round. It's actually, it's cooking the, uh, the, the surface of the barrel. At that point, you, you run a lot of different risks, right? You run a lot of different risks on the, the, the barrel itself, your firearms, your, your hands are going to be, they're, they're going to be hot as hell. You're going to have to use a glove to hold on to your rifle, depending on what you're, you know, what you're shooting. Your hand guards are in place on an M16, M4, depending on the variable they're using. They're in place to protect your hand from the heat of the barrel. But at that point, your oh, barrel's that's a, that's so a, that's hot. That's an interesting point. Yeah, your barrel's so hot that you'll your hand will not be able to 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 maintain even through a glove. If you get a barrel that hot to cook rounds, you're going to feel the heat coming off that barrel through the hand guards and through your glove. Somebody should have stopped that training iteration well before that happened. But, you know, it's easy for me to armchair quarterback it from my, you know, comfortable office here in San Antonio. No, I like it, man. That's good insight. Yeah. Um, I, when, my dad was, when my dad would reminisce, he had a certain stories from World War II that he liked to tell and tell again. And when people, on the subject of uh, urine human urine, he would often reminisce about how much he disliked the smell or how much he associated the smell of piss with pissing on overheated barrels. Oh, yeah. In the military and the distinct odor that made. And that um, kind of turned him off to piss smell. Hot piss smell. I, I, I know that smell, not from pissing on firearms, <laughs> but from pissing on my uh, muffler. You know, pulling on, pulling over and trying to find the wheel well, and like just burying yourself in because you got a long road trip and you can't find a place to to pull off and get a cover. So I just go in on that on that uh, rear wheel well of the yeah. truck. I've lately adopted the really old manny the really old manny thing you do where you open your door mm-hmm. and just kind of wedge in there. <laughs> yeah. Kind of wedged, so you're standing. <laughs> yeah, you know, like you yeah. look like you. You sort of you're trying to like look like a person who I don't know what the hell you look like you're doing. Like you're <laughs> yeah. contemplating whether to get in or out of your truck. Yeah, and you you take a piss there. Yeah, I, I was doing that the other day and kind of got almost got busted by someone. I was at a river access and almost got busted by someone who came in around and caught me through my own passenger window. <laughs> But I, I I pinched her off and didn't have an issue. Uh, that that probably thing a guy recently wrote in where he's saying like a hot tip for ice fishing. He says if your hole is freezing up and you think peeing on it will thaw it out, don't do it. You just wind up with a frozen hole covered in frozen piss. 
Uh, Evan, now when you're uh, when someone's like, "Hey, man, what the hell's uh, what the hell's Black Rifle Coffee Company?" Yeah, like why that? What what do you tell them? Why not? You know, like, <laughs> like, what did uh, Sir Edmund Hillary? I think he said. Yeah, they asked him, why'd you climb Everest? Because it was there. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I used to, the, the Genesis story is not very long and it's really not that complex because I'm not that smart of a guy, but I was teaching firearms and roasting coffee, uh, my previous profession. So I was teaching, um, close quarters combat and advanced pistol marksmanship to a bunch of former special operations guys. And I would have this one pound, it's a, called a fluid bed roaster, which is really just hot air. It's, it's an elaborate popcorn popper, essentially. And um, I was roasting coffee and teaching firearms at the time. But ro- roasting, had, roasting it for personal use? Yeah, and for the courses that I was teaching. So guys would come through. I would get 24 to 12 guys every few weeks, and I would roast coffee for the courses. and Just as a, nice, as a nice gesture? Yeah, that's all it was for, just – I had uh, I had a couple of buddies that I would ship it out to, but most of the time it was just because I was interested in roasting coffee. It was my hobby for a long time. I loved it, and uh, I had my service rifle literally on the on the tailgate of the G ride, the government vehicle, and I had a one pound fluid bed coffee roaster on the other side. I looked at those two things, put the two words together: black rifle, because that's essentially it was just this dirty black rifle from being used on the range and coffee merge those two things. And there's black rifle coffee company. Uh, that was it. it. It managed to create a, a, um, I guess an image in a lot of people's minds. So if you're anti black rifles, uh, that obviously would kind of incite some feeling of negativity uh, I wasn't really thinking of that at the time, though. I was just looking at my service rifle. I was very naive even to the Pro 2A community and some of those other things. I was super naive. I was just looking at my service rifle and looking at my coffee roaster going, yeah, yeah those yeah. two things look together, you know? I've told this story a bunch of times, but in when we were naming, when we were, like, starting a show, making a show, um, I was reading – um, a lot of books to my new kid, a very young kid, and he liked dinosaur books. And you'd always get to the T Rex, right? And it'd be like this ferocious meat eater, right? Or you'd get to like a grizzly bear part of a book or whatever, and it'd be like right. the this meat eater is the king of the mountain, right? And I was like, oh, I kind of like that word. I just like that word. Yeah. But I hadn't thought of the full implication, and then later it became like, um. Later, it's often understood by people that you're sort of making a dietary suggestion right? or that you're like the meat eater when it was just meant to be like this sort of like it was meant to be this kind of like classification of animals. Yeah. You know, I wasn't blind to the way it would work, but it wasn't like a really well thought thing. It was just it seemed like a cool word. It is a cool word. It is. Like it rolls off the tongue. They're balanced. You know, it's a cool word. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool logo. But it's the same thing. People go, did you 
you know, I didn't hire a marketing company. I didn't really have any ideas to even how to market a product, to be honest with you. Did you, so, ha- did you have a lot of people tell you as you're starting your business, did you have a lot of people tell you that um, you better change the name? Every day. Today, oh yeah, even, we hear even, it. even today, even today. Yeah, we I'm hear sure it. People. We hear it every day. Yeah, it, ours isn't ours isn't is is pugnacious as yours at all. But we still hear, um, you know, we have a book coming out, uh, wilderness skills and survival book, and we just heard yeah. from someone affiliated with, you know, that uh, that our name in there could be divisive. You know, yeah. so. I, I I I hear it all the time. It's just you know people they'll DM me or something or I, you know, where I hear it a lot is from people that don't know me and they're, we're introduced in public places somewhere and uh, you'll be sitting there with a group of people and you'll have a, somebody typically from the corporate world that has, you know, way more degrees than they have a, a, a intelligence. And They'll say something like, well, how are you going to capture the entire market with a company name like Black Rifle? And instantly I just kind of want to say, uh, you know, I don't care, you know. And typically that's <laughs> what I say. Like, I, I don't care. Uh, I'm not that concerned. Uh, well, how can you not be concerned? You know, that's typically their reaction to. It's like, ah, I'm just not that concerned, man. I was roasting coffee in my garage. Like, this is bigger than I thought it was going to be when I was doing it, this is way bigger than it is now. I'm more concerned with, you know, other things than capturing the entire coffee market and, you know, working with a bunch of back slapping pleated docker wearing, you know, back nine D bags. Like that's not, it's not my thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my thing. I didn't get a t-shirt that says that on it. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money. And provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow 
so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. You grew up in, in Idaho, right? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in. Uh... Someplace I'm sure you're familiar with, Lewiston, Idaho. Oh yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Did, so, did you grow up? Did you grow up hunting and fishing? I did. Yeah, yeah. I, my dad actually, uh, well, every both sides of my family, uh, mom's side, my dad's side. I grew up in a smaller logging town. When you go up the Clearwater on uh, Highway 12, as you're probably familiar with, up and over the Low Low Pass, there's a really small, small town, a logging town up there called Weipe, Idaho. Yeah, my family's from. Yeah. Uh, we at Prairie actually. And, uh, then we moved to Lewiston later in life and I spent more time fishing early on than I did hunting. I would go out hunting with my grandpa, my dad, both, but I, I was way more interested in fishing, uh, from an early age. I, I was a, I was a nerd, you know, like I was, when I say, you know, nerd, I was the guy building a fly rod when I was 12, when all my other friends were, you know, wanting to do skateboarding. And, <laughs> you know, I was like, ah, I'm, I'm super interested in doing this, trying to build this fly rod. I'm sure that you guys are, are very similar to that. You spent a lot of time on the river. I did. Every, uh, I, I've spent, I would say the majority of my recreation adult life has been on rivers. Uh, that's, that's where, that's where I would classify I'm, I'm, I'm at home and I feel the most comfortable outside of my home home as is in the river. You know, I, I feel like you said this to me. Your mom or your dad was Jewish, right? Or you, my dad. Yeah. 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 He's, he's how, how Jewish he, ancestry. How did he wind up? Uh, what was the line? How did he wind up in the logging community there? Uh, it was a family tradition. I think my great grandfather was a, actually a sheep herder. Um, oh, is that right? And, really? Yeah, they were sheep herders, and then my grandfather was logging only because that that's where they they landed. So my grandfather, my dad's dad, we, we we disconnected from our entire family tree at that point. He moved out west, and we didn't really know anyone past my grandfather. 
So he had moved out to Idaho when he was like 12 or 13. He'd taken like a train from Colorado or New Mexico and just strike like striking out on his own. Yeah. Yeah. They had something like, you know, 80 kids or something uh, at the point. And he struck out and he landed in, in a small logging town, which was Wei Porfino, uh, that, that whole area in Northern Idaho. And uh, so we didn't really, we, we weren't practicing or anything like that. It was something that I found later in life where, uh, you know, through 23 and me and a bunch of oh, you know, I got put, you. Yeah, putting yeah. the pieces all together because yeah. my dad used to say, oh, we're this, we're German. And then it was, oh, we're, we're, he would, he'd have some other names for it. But um, it was pretty easy for me to piece it all together because I went to Jerusalem later in life. And, and uh, I knew by that time, even before 23andMe came out, 23andMe just confirmed the genetics test basically. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, how did you get into your head growing up the way you grew up, where you grew up? Did you guys have like how'd you get in your head? You wanted to go to Green Beret school. I mean, were you were you uh, a mil- were you a military family? No, I. You know, it's super easy. As guys that were outdoor, uh, you guys are outdoorsmen. Um, I I spent every waking moment. I went to the University of Idaho, which is in Moscow, every weekend, every morning, and then if you know, if, depending on what you know, Steelhead Run was in, it, it was how active I was going to participate in classes, basically. Uh, and I spent the majority of, of my high school and, and college days in the outdoors. Uh, I was kind of introduced to Green Berets through a friend, and I loved being in the outdoors. That's, that's, I love being in the mountains. I love being in the outdoors. And I thought, well, I also want to jump out of planes. That's that's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, the Green Berets' mission is by, with, and through. So they're working with host national forces to do essentially covert action, which is direct action. That's to me that was really adventurous. It was super cool. It was something that I could spend all my time like in jungles and mountains. You know, wearing a rucksack and living out of it, and and. And then also, you know, jumping out of planes and potentially going to war. Uh, that sounded, nobody really had to convince me too hard. It, you know, it, that was a, it was a pretty easy connect for me as far as being able to, to look at my life in Idaho and say, how do I spend my, my adulthood outside and doing these high adventure things? And then two, I wanted to learn and I, I, I was kind of, in love with this image of, you know, to be a Green Beret, they're called snake eaters and, you know, they'll eat things and make a billy goat puke and all this stuff. And I was like, man, I want to be the ultimate survivalist. I'm going to, I'm going to be able to just like go out with nothing but a loincloth after I'm done with this and like a knife and just survive off the land, which is total horseshit. But um, that's kind of at 18 years old. That's kind of what I wanted to do. And and uh, it wasn't a hard sell. It was, it was easy. As soon as I was done with college, I was I was off and wanted to do that. Were you, were your uh, were your parents were your parents pissed or supportive or? They didn't really know. Uh, they they didn't really know what it was. They my mom was. I, I don't even know if my mom today even really knows what a green beret does or is. She just knows like my son was in the military. 
You know, he worked for the CIA for a while. I think she might have even thought that the CIA was the Culinary Institute of America for a while. <laughs> well, um, you like you like to roast coffee. You know, yeah. <laughs> My dad was like, once he found out that that's what I wanted to do, I think he probably pulled me off to the side and was, and was like, well, don't get your hopes up, you know? Like, you know, get get ready to be disappointed or something like that, you know? Because and, you wouldn't uh, be able to make it through the courses? Yeah, I don't think my dad ever looked at me as like a really hard kid at, you know, 18 years old. So I think he was more looking at it like, dude, don't don't really get your hopes up too high. Uh, did, did you struggle through the elimination course? No. Uh, I, you know, I spent most of my time backpacking and and just kind of suffering. I, 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 I loved to kind of do these endurance events before endurance events were cool. I liked the aspect of suffering. I wanted to kind of go through this hero's journey for a lack of a better term. Um, I was in love with that process. And there was never a time, I've heard that, people always say, well, there's always a time when you would have thought about quitting or something like that. Like, I never thought about quitting. I, I was concerned about my body quitting on me, you know, like, oh, can I walk another step? You know, is it am I going to collapse from heat exhaustion or, you know, sleep deprivation? I was concerned about that. So it was a very conscious thought as to where does my body end its physical performance, right? And I never found that. I, I don't know. It's it's very difficult to find that, I would imagine. I've, I haven't found it yet. A, a friend of ours who was in the Navy pointed out that in the, in the, seal elimination or what do you guys call it? Not elimination yeah. course, but the buds, yeah. the, tr the tryout, whatever. Yeah. He was saying that the strategy there is to use, um, cold water. Yeah. And PT. Mm -hmm. What, what, what do they use on you guys? Uh, well, they like cold water and PT that. to break you down, you know, or to find your limit. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but with you, it's not cold water, I'm guessing. No, it, a lot of it is built on, you have to be alone in the woods under a rucksack for a long period of time. So it's a map, it's a compass, it's 60 plus pounds of weight in a rifle. And you're walking from point to point to point. That's part of it. And a lot of people are really uncomfortable being in the, in the, in the woods at night. A lot of people, there's psychologically, there. It's a really easy thing to start chopping away the, the fat, and then two, you know, as you guys know, like navigating with a map and compass is a difficult thing. To be good at it and to hit your points on time, and as you're running through the mountains with a you know a map in one hand, you're dead reckoning portions of it. You're trying to hit your times, and if you don't hit your times, you're going to be eliminated. So that's part of it. The other aspects of it are. How do you work as a team? So they do what's called team events. So special forces assessment and selection. Uh, they have, uh, it's about three weeks plus before you can even get into the course. They have a pre-course, which is a 20 some day course that puts you through a bunch of different performance standards, land navigation, team events. And then you get into the course. The course, so you lose we'll say 70 plus percent on the first 20 some days. Then if you get accepted into the course, you lose another 70 plus percent. It takes you two years. It took me two years, year and we'll call it nine, 10 months just to get a green beret. So 
it takes a long time and uh, it's different. So when you look at other special operations units and what they're selecting for, each one is selecting for a very specific mission set, a type of person for that mission set. They have very similar, they, they actually, the, the, the Special Operations Command and the Joint Special Operations Command, they have similar sleep deprivation selection criteria. So they can only keep you up, I think, don't hold me to this, but it's about three and a half days. You can stay, they ha, they, they, at some point in the course, whether you're a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or a Force Recon Marine or whatever it might be, they're going to keep you up for about three and a half days before they put you down for about 10 minutes of sleep, give or take. Um, because they'll cause permanent brain damage if you go past something like four days or something like that. I was talking to, to a, a, a special operations psychologist about this several years ago. And he's like, everybody has the same sleep deprivation standard. Like everybody has to do the sleep issue. And sleep is, it is the single worst thing for, I think, to go without. It, it hurts your body. It just hurts your body to go through intense physical activity with no food and no sleep. Psychologically, that is so difficult to, to work through problems and be a conscious team member. And all these issues that you run into, uh, it, 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 it physically hurts to go without sleep. And then you pile in all the other things with that. It, it doesn't surprise me that the, the, most of the people that try these courses, they just don't make it because it's, it's devastating. It, and it, even to, to this day, I can do without sleep, but I don't like it. I, don't, I, don't, I do not like it. It's not something that I, I prefer whatsoever. Um, and I've done it, I think, my, the majority of my adult life. But you, know, you take yourself three days and then put yourself down for a 10-minute nap and then do another day, 24-hour cycle, and then put yourself down for another 10-minute nap and then do it again, you're a wreck. You, you feel like you've been hit by a, by a freight train. Uh, real quick, what, how, how much do you like to sleep now, now that that's all behind you? Yeah, I wish I could. Like that, I, that is like one of the things that I, I've, I really try. I have to be really disciplined with my sleep, my sleep routine. It, because I was pre-built in this era of guys that, that used to refer to sleep as a crutch. This was, it was repeated and beat into your head over and over and over and over again. You're going to sleep when you're dead. Sleep is a crutch. Sleep, sleep, sleep is not, it's not an option. I've had two plus decades of that. It's only been in the last, I'll call it two and a half years of my life where I have had to be extremely disciplined about getting seven hours of sleep. And now I have to force myself to sleep more because I know the long-term health benefits and then the negative attributes of not getting it, right? I don't want to have dementia when I'm yeah. 60. I don't want Alzheimer's. You know, your recovery cycles are faster. There is such a big difference between five and a half hours and me and seven and a half hours of sleep. See, it's, it's miles of difference between performance, especially when I've got all the responsibilities of the company and a few other things. I notice, I notice those two hours way more than I ever have. And more importantly, now I've got to think about it, concentrate, and work on getting more. Yeah, that's uh... – well, I've been sleeping my ass off now because this, you know, all this quarantine stuff yeah. going on. I'm starting to, I was telling my wife the other day, I feel like I'm getting soft, man. 
we've been sleeping at least eight hours every night, which is like, I, I'm, I'm, I need to end it just because I don't want to have that become uh, such an important thing for me. Well, uh, <laughs> just, just what Evan said, you're going to do the opposite now. No, dude. Uh, yeah, well, hey, uh, what year was all this going on that you were like, like, were you, um, give me the timeline relative to the 9-11 attacks. Um, I had graduated the Q course in the summer of 2000. Oh, okay. So, so you were then, like, you were ready to roll. Yeah. I, I, right after September 11th, a few days, not a few days, a few months, I went to, uh, the Philippines on our first rotation, which was a, a war on terror rotation. And then from the Philippines, I went to Kuwait in preparation for operation Iraqi freedom and I did the invasion of Iraqi freedom, which was March of 2003. So uh, I was I was graduating and then going straight into the to the to the mix. Did you spend a lot of time in Afghanistan as well? Mm, only about two and a half years uh, total, I would imagine, uh, give or take. Uh, the majority of my time, because I, I I was I was with special forces and the invasion of Iraq, and then I, I went to work. Um, 2005, late 2005 for the for the CIA. And then I spent uh, the next nine years there. So I was deployed the majority of my from from 2002 to 2014. The majority of those years, uh, I was I was deployed either to Iraq or Afghanistan for give or take 200. 50 plus days a year is the work you were doing with the this kind of I'm, I'm anticipating this is a dumb question but maybe i'll be surprised it's not a dumb question is the work you were doing with the cia like fundamentally different than the work you're doing with the military was it just like a whole other skill set or was it sort of a, a, a continuation of what you skills you had acquired and were put into use it's a combination uh, as a Green Beret, you, you kind of learn a lot about the, you know, the art of combat, and then you start to put it into practice in real combat, and then you start to develop and curate other skills that are in the combat environment. So not every one of your skills in, in combat is direct fighting, right? So it's not just taking task to the enemy. It's surveillance, counter-surveillance. It's asset management, so it's information collection. Uh, but you have to be proficient in operating in a combat zone because it, it, it's a unique environment. It's a lot like hunting. If you go out and hunt for the first time, and I mean, you guys think back to, think about yourselves if you've never hunted or you've hunted with a person that's never hunted before, they're their gears all messed up. They they walk too loud. They don't understand wind. It's a totally different experience. Yeah, combat is so much, and living in a combat zone is so much like that. You have to learn the environment, and you have to kind of learn how to even survive in that environment. And then you can apply the skills of just survival to being able to thrive in that environment, and then excel towards mission accomplishment or mission success. Um, so it's a different set, but it requires the previous skills, if that makes sense. Yeah. I imagine that you end up, um, 
I bet you spend you end up with an in an inordinate amount of time um feeling at risk. If you mm-hmm. had to when you when you imagine that all those years spent in war zones, um is the amount of time that you felt like that heightened sense of being at risk, is that uh when you think about it now, is it was it minutes, was it hours, was it years? Um, it's, it's interesting because you, your body gets acclimated to it. Um, and it, it's, it, if you guys, if you guys have run like big rivers, I would imagine, or done yeah. really well, a, stuff, a bit. Right? Yeah. I, I've done it. Yeah. I, I mean, not like you, but yeah, yeah, I've done stuff where we were very aware of yeah. the, very aware of risk. <laughs> so, but as you start to run and you get more proficient, your tolerance starts to go up because you're more proficient, you're more confident. And then you start going through stuff where you're like, ah, it's no big deal. Or you're doing a, you know, a climb or you're, you're roping off on something. You just kind of get a greater amount of tolerance towards risk. Your body starts to acclimate against it. And then you're only really heightened when you're being shot at. But even then it's not like the first time you were shot at, if that makes sense. No, I got you. Yeah. Um, so you, you just get used, your body starts to acclimate and adapt. So I've got, I, I, I got the best sleep of my life when I was downrange. I would, we'd live in these shipping containers. I'd crank the AC unit and block off all the light and I could sleep for eight, 10 hours. I can't do that today. Um, but it, it definitely is one of those things where the first couple of years, Baghdad, Iraq, and Ramadi, those places in 2005, 2006, it was, um, it was so active all the time. There were car bombs and IEDs going off every day, and not just a little, just a few. Um, these were really the most dangerous places in the world, and they were targeting Americans every day with complex attacks and IEDs. So you got used to being out in the city and and fighting. I I remember very distinctly sitting multiple times going, oh, that's not my gunfight over there. So I I can just kind of watch it. Um, Or that's not my ambush. I'm not in that ambush. So, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. it's such a weird mentality when you think about it, I'd be on the road and it's not my ambush. All right, I'm going to be back here drinking coffee until this ambush comes to me, I guess. And, you know, those cities at those time frames, uh, I don't know of any other more dangerous uh, kind of work you could do in the more complex environment. Uh, Baghdad, 05, 06, and Mosul, and uh, where I was there in uh, 08, 09, by far they were what I call the most spicy they were the they were the spicy cities of that of yeah, that country, yeah, yeah. and you're just living in it. You just kind of learn to adapt to your environment. You just live in it. And you if you think about it, it'll just eat you alive, and you won't you won't actually be able to uh, to to conduct your profession. At, at what point? Um, maybe it was all the time. Did you start thinking like, man, when I'm done doing this shit, I'm gonna blank. Um, like I'm just gonna hunt and fish. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. I'm going to start making roasted coffee. Like, like how do you, um, how did you become aware of the sort of afterlife, you know? I, I, I didn't, I didn't plan for past 30, which is always kind of a, a morbid thing for people to hear, but I didn't plan past 30. So past 30, I kind of had to develop a new plan. Oh, so if I'm going to be around for a while, I'm going to have to try to figure my shit out as an adult. Um, and then I started having those thoughts. It wasn't until I went, met my wife where I decided that, and it was much later in life. I was like 36, 37. I wanted to have kids and uh, I wanted to have a family. Did you always know? Did things. you always know you were going to have kids? No, I, no. I after after thirty, I, I didn't plan for anything. I thought that I, I I truly didn't think that I was going to leave Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, you mean you didn't think you were going to leave alive, or you just thought no. that the war would go on forever? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think I was going to leave alive. I didn't make huh. plans for 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 post military, post CIA. And if I did, my thoughts were in what was I going to do as a special operations guy or a CIA guy at, at 40 or 50. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until um, it wasn't until probably 36, 37. And honestly, it was, it was, it was, I was on the middle fork of the salmon. I'd just come back from Afghanistan. Um, and the middle fork of the salmon is in the Frank Church Wilderness area, as I'm sure you're familiar with, because it's just west of you guys in Bozeman. And I'd rode down the river with my buddy, and I'd done two trips back-to-back. So I'd spent about 14 days on the river. And I realized, I was like, I, I've got to get out of the life that I'm in. And I've, I've got to repatriate myself in, into the mountains. I had had such a long road in deserts and in places where people wanted to kill me. Um it was really hard for me to even unplug and enjoy the wilderness. And that was like, it was strange to me. It it felt really, really foreign. And I didn't want to live with that anymore. I I really didn't. When you're, when you're dead and you're callous and you can't enjoy, you know, snow tipped ridgeline or, you know, a, a simple track somewhere and you can't take enjoyment in, in those things. Um, it took me about 14 days to kind of, strip away that and realize I, I got, I, I got to do something a little bit different with my life and get back to the things that I really, really loved. And it wasn't even two years past that point. It was, it probably wasn't even 18 months. I started chopping everything away and the agency, thank God told me that they didn't want me to work for them either. And I didn't want to work for them. And it was like, it was perfect. Uh, which is a polite way of me saying that I got fired, but everybody gets fired from there, so I don't, I don't feel oh, too it, bad about it's that. Nor- it's normal to get fired. <laughs> yeah, nine. You know, I mean, when I say it's normal, man, that they, they have a, you know, they, they, it's a, it's an interesting place to work, but it's 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 very political. I'm not a political animal. Like I, I can't survive in political environments. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not something that I can do. It, I'm not a careerist, and. I knew that, you know, I knew that. And so did the people working around me. Uh, I'm, I'm curious when you say um, a political environment, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like politics? Like, uh, yeah, 
like right. like politics like how we understand politics to be or do you mean like political like in in terms of people plotting and yeah scheming I don't no it's not even that you've got two and I think this is true with the corporate environment just in general you've got people that are and and you guys understand this too you got the mission first people that are all about accomplishing the goals of the company for the company with team effort and unity mm-hmm you have people that are serving the country that are the most patriotic and driven people in America and they are they need all the you know love and support and appreciation we can put that put put onto them then you have the me first people and these are people where you know maybe they were picked on as a kid or whatever and they think that working at an working for an acronym will make them a better person Right, so because I work at the CIA, and I get this next promotion, uh, that will define me as a human being. And so everything is about me and making sure that they're the ones that eat first. They're the ones that are, you know, promoted and are receiving the accolades. And you have the 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 silent majority that are mission first. Unfortunately, the missions and the me's come in conflict a lot. Because yeah, got you. They they just they they come into conflict a lot, and uh, there's just a lot of, uh, and that's just I think true in in general with government bureaucracies at times when you have people that are more concerned with their career than they are with the 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 mission and the men, and it, it's unfortunate, but it's it's true. But that's not the majority. It's it's definitely not the majority. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow 
so you don't overheat. What's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada, different temperatures, all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. Earlier we talked about getting interested in coffee, and you kind of just mentioned you like to roast coffee. Yeah. But how, uh, like in more detail, how did this whole thing happen? I mean, there's a lot of people that like yeah. to roast. There's a lot of people that like to roast coffee. Yeah. Uh, I'm not one of them, but I understand there to be a lot of them. <laughs> and they don't all have right. a big coffee company now. <laughs> Which is weird because it's a whole other thing. My buddy and I were joking around. He was, he's up here at the ranch with me. He was like, man, you're, you're kind of seen as like the man now. And I'm like, I, what? What are, you, like, you know, what are you talking about? It's like, oh, you're kind of a bigger company. And I'm like, ah, I don't feel like it. I still feel like the same guy that was roasting coffee in my garage. But to go back, uh, I started getting really into coffee because I loved coffee. Um, and I, I started roasting it because I couldn't get fresh roasted coffee downrange. I could get this like old, stale, nasty coffee. I could get that shipped out. But I was like, you know what? I'll just buy a little roaster. It'll be a really cool hobby. You know, a lot of guys are, you know, they do random stuff where, you know, they're like fletching arrows or whatever they do, right? Like coffee roasting was somewhat like that for me. I would come home. I would experiment with a bunch of different roasts. I was learning about the profiles and it allowed me to kind of completely disconnect from the profession I was into and just kind of dive into something that was a little bit more uh, of a, of, of a, a curated, I guess, interest that I could drink and a lot of this was just being able to take coffees that I truly loved and take them with me. So I would have these epic cups of coffee that I would roast and spend a lot of time with. And I would take them out and, you know, be fly fishing in northern Idaho or Montana or somewhere. And I would be using my jet boiler, or my MSR, or whatever it was. I'd make these like incredible cups of coffee. And then I would take that same roast profile and I would take it with me to Iraq, the shittiest place on earth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I would go, I would get up in the morning and have a, a cup of coffee and it would remind me of, you know, what the, 
you know, the North Fork of the Clearwater or Kelly Creek or, you know, it remind me of these beautiful rivers that are amazing and that experience that I had on the, on, on the riverbank. But I could get that in the mornings in Iraq and honestly it would, it would allow me a little bit of psychological comfort and a connection to home and those specific places that kind of just allowed me to continue to operate. And then I just got more and more interested in it. Um, you know, when you're, eventually, hang, when you're hanging out with all these, uh, you know, you're hanging out with all these war fighters, you know, and like super tough people. And you talked about learning how to suffer. Was there like a joke? How I, I'm sorry. Like I, I, I like coffee a lot too. Yeah. But was there the joke? There's kind of this like fussy sort of a feat. Like were people yeah. kind of like, what? What? Yeah. All the time, man. There's a big difference between fletching arrows and roasting coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the time. All the time. So that, that, that did, it didn't go unnoticed. <laughs> no, it didn't go unnoticed. I, 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 it, was, it was a joke. It was like, Hafer has got this weird thing with coffee. But the thing of it is, is people could come over to where you know, my little hooch was, and they knew, you know, one of my other buddies, who's a great guy, is, is former SEAL V Diamond, he and I were coffee, hardcore coffee heads, and we would make these little coffee, you know, areas in each one of our bases. Well, everybody likes good coffee. No, I don't know of anybody unless they don't drink it, right? Everybody loves good coffee. No, so I, I, I know a couple things. people that don't. Yeah, in Utah, there's a few people that don't either yeah. too. Um, no, I mean, I don't mean like that they don't like coffee, but for instance, my mother's husband um, just doesn't. Like he drinks a lot of coffee, but he just insists on it being very, he likes Folgers and he likes it yeah. to look like tea. <laughs> I, that's like the old school. The yeah. guys that are from the old school, my grandpa would take these two, you know, those green Stanley thermoses that, and they just roll, roll on the bottom of the truck, the, the, the F-150 and the mountains and just, they're just beat. They got dents all over them. Almost all the green is rubbed off. They're almost like a shiny steel wool or, 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 or stainless steel, my grandpa would make the same crap. You could look through the bottom of the top of the glass and see, you know, 12 inches below, you could see the bottom of the cup, <laughs> right? It's just, it was horrible. It is, it is horrible. So, but that's the, that's the old school. I know if I go anywhere, I've, I've, I've trained my dad to, to drink better coffee now, but if I go anywhere with my uncle's, Man, I can't I I can't even entertain the idea of opening up that Stanley and pouring a cup of coffee. It's just horrible. It's nasty. I wonder where that originated, right? Cuz you still see it in like ranching communities. Yeah. Like if you just stop in at some random ranch house and they invite you in, like you're pr that's probably the cup of coffee you're going to get, right? Oh yeah. Is it a is it a depression era thing where where we can't use too much of this because we need it to last longer? I would imagine. Yeah. I would imagine. The hardest guy I've ever met in my life was never a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL. He was a guy, Rusty, Rusty Bentz. He's a guy from Lewiston, Idaho. The guy would only drink coffee as far as I know. I don't know if he ever even had a, <laughs> he's had a glass of water. He could run full sprint up the, and you guys know these guys, he could run full sprint up a ridgeline in White's boots after a cat with, a, with his dogs. And I would be, you know, I'm running like 50 miles you know, 50 milers, I'm like a hardcore green beret and he'd be putting me in the, in the ground, in the mountains. On coffee. And he, he's just running on coffee. 
He's like the hardest guy on the planet. He's, he's 70 years old. He could probably still hunt me into the ground. You know what I mean? Like these guys, the, the old school mountain mountain guys that we've all, you know, come into contact with, like those, those are the hardest, some of the hardest people on the planet. And I, I don't know if they just survive on wheat coffee, which is that's how they hydrate. But I don't know. I've thought about it a lot though. Because those people are, there's a lot of hard people out there. So hit, and they're they're not seals. Hit me with the hit me with the basic chronology of how you uh, like how you went from hobby coffee roaster to like what was the first time you sold some right like what like what was your first transaction? Oh, that's that was uh 2014. I teamed up with my buddy Matt. He was making these stupid videos on the internet. We still do. I mean, that's that's what we kind of do. And uh, he was working at the CIA. I was working at the CIA, and we were introduced to one another. And we both have this a similar sense of humor, which is he kind of messed up. And he um, was like, "Yeah, I've got this T-shirt company called Article 15 Clothing, which that's a reference to getting in trouble in the military." And uh, you know, maybe we should roast coffee. And I was, I was like, yeah, let's roast some coffee for, for you. So I started roasting their coffee first. And so I roasted like 500 pounds of coffee for them. And then I said, you know what? I think I, I'm going to do this online. And I was really interested in figuring out, I didn't know how to build a website. Didn't know how to do product photography. But I knew that I, I, I wanted to have a business that allowed me to explore coffee. That's, that's really what I wanted. And uh, so I built all of that stuff because I was fascinated with it. I took my product photos, built a website, you know, started tinkering around with how to market and put out even like really bad videos. And, um, and then I, I started selling coffee. Uh, really, my first transaction was January 2015. It was my first official Black Rifle Coffee transaction. And man, it's blown up since then. Yeah, we have 228 employees. That's um, incredible, man. No, it's, it's insane. Like, it's insane. Like, I'm, I'm you know, I, to come back from war, have all your fingers and toes, you know, I'm a really lucky guy. Like, I, I mean, I'm a very, very fortunate and lucky guy. For a and laundry list of reasons. What's your guys? What's your guys' policy on? I know you have shitloads of vets that work for you, but what's your? Uh, is there a formal policy, or do you just try to lean that direction as much as you can lean that direction? Like, like, explain that all. Um, well, I said about fifty percent hiring rate for veterans. Um, you know, as we've grown the company, I've had to pull in civilian help because they 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 just know more about a lot of different things, especially when it comes to finance and operational efficiencies. Um, so when we say it's our official, we, we, we do have a veteran's preference and we try in the hiring process, if everybody's created equal in a resume, we try to put veterans in the shoot against non-veterans uh, in, a, in, a, in a more proficient way. So we understand how to read their resumes. We understand their work experience. And we might take on people that don't necessarily have the definitive qualifications for a role, but I might want to see them there in, you know, 180 or 270 days, right? So we'll take on people that we we just want to grow into those positions. So I'm trying to be more patient in the way that we hire. And then I want 
you know, civilians kind of adapt more to a military culture versus the reverse is true with most veterans, which is they sit at like, you know, 5%, give or take in some companies, uh, which is high for a lot of companies, but they have to adapt to civilian, when I say their, their lingo, we use a lot of acronyms out here. We, I do mission planning here for the company and that's my corporate planning. So everybody has to adapt to the way that we do company planning, the way the military did it. We run, mil- we run military structured meetings and briefings, which is kind of crazy for a lot of civilians because they're like, what in the hell are you guys doing? Like, we don't understand. I'm like, yeah, what do you think it feels like to be a, a new guy going into the corporate world, stepping into GE for the first time, and you've been, you know, running missions in Ramadi. You're trying to learn as fast as you can because you don't understand what they're talking about. What is a SWOT analysis? What are you talking about? What's a cost per, you know, acquisition? I don't know, right? So once you dial in your lingo and your recruitment piece, uh, it becomes pretty easy that that's, that's the way that we attract people and the people that we, we hire and put into positions. You, you know, you just made an interesting point, man. Um, I was looking at some resumes recently and, and two of them, three counting Coast Guard, three of them had military experience. And it's funny you just mentioned that because I didn't even realize I wasn't able to do it. All it registered when there's the explanation, right? Okay, what they did for these years. All it registered in my head was military, right? I had no way to look at it and be like, oh, yeah, I could picture that skill set, right? And it was like, but but now what I realized about myself is I didn't even give it the time to go find out, meaning any other job, any sort of job in the professional sector, whatever, private sector. I'd have right. been like, oh yeah, I could picture what that entails. Right. Like I, I, I see that he must, he or she must be um, proficient at X, Y, and Z to have done that. But with the military stuff, I'm like, oh, military, cool. Yeah. Don't I? But you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing. If I, I it used to be, I was, I was, I was looking for a chief financial officer a couple years ago, and my partner had to explain to me even what a CFO did. So he's just like, hey man, you, and I've got, I've got a great partner. I've got a couple great partners, but they they've they've had to really unpack and organize information for me, and it's been extremely helpful because I can read a military resume ninety percent of the time. I can tell you plus or minus ten percent efficiency what that what that job really was. Right? What there's the definition to what it is, and then what does it mean when you're actually executing on it. Uh, whereas if you're a couple years ago, if you were to ask me to, to, to build a finance or an operations department, I would have been like, all right, man, I, I'm going to, I'm going to grab some people and hopefully they can help me figure it out. Uh, and that's kind of where my head's been the last few years. I, like I said, I, I've been pretty lucky growing the company, uh, to not have too many, you know, massive head injuries when it's been hiring people. Um, but Still, still not without its mistakes. That's for sure. Yanni's got a question for you. It popped up on my screen here. Please. Me and Yanni communicate through little messages. I didn't even see him type. Are you just thinking? Evan's Evan's he, on that same uh, doc. Too, Yanni developed yesterday. Yanni developed the ability just to think into just his to computer. Think it? Yeah, he's, so work, he's doing, working. He's working on that software. Go ahead, Yanni. 
Um, I, I was going to ask just in your testing of making coffee yeah, and trying to get the right brews and whatnot and just being a coffee connoisseur, like, have you ever gotten to the point, because you're drinking your regular old caffeinated coffee, have you ever had too much and had a real issue? Oh, yeah. From drinking too much coffee? Yeah, about once a week, give or take. <laughs> Plus, <laughs> yeah, I, I, when you're really cupping a lot of coffee, so I'll go to country of origin. So I'll go to like Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Colombia, wherever. And um, if you're cupping a lot of coffees, I've made those mistakes really early, which is you're trying the coffee. And you take a little spoon and you're dipping it in, you're, you're, you're aspirating it across your tongue to try to pick up all the different, the different aspects of the coffee. Well, early on, you're supposed to spit that out as you're doing it because if, if you're going to be doing it all day, man, that's just too much coffee. And these are typically lighter roasted coffees, which have more caffeine in them. Well, huh, lighter I, roasted has more caffeine? Yeah, so a lighter roasted coffee has more caffeine than a darker roasted coffee. Oh, sure. dude, I've always make my call on how much caffeine I want by I had to ask backward. Yeah, it's super easy to think about oh. because the the bean itself as you're applying heat to it, it's turning into carbon, right? So you're just taking away its its integrity and you're putting it into charcoal essentially. Because if you over roast it, you're 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 you're, you're, you're pulling the, the, the beans going endothermic. So it's pulling in all this heat and it goes exothermic. So it's pushing it all out. And then eventually it starts to, to decompose from the heat, right? So the darker roasted coffee is less intact of the coffee bean itself. And it starts to take away a percentage of its caffeine as it gets darker roasted. No so huh. yeah, if you Phil, want did you caffeine, know I bet Phil knew this. Yeah, that's one thing that, I did. That's know. one of the stupid things Phil would know. Oh, that's like that's like <laughs> Phil knows stuff like that. Phil will surprise you, man. He knows a lot of stuff. Not a Schlitterbahn's principle or whatever the thing is we were talking about earlier. Berg, Bergman's principle and Allen's Bergman, rule. Got it. Oh, uh, Phil, yeah. he's he's good. Go on. So, and what was uh, what was your question? I forget. He's just I wondering how, like, how often off. how often you drink too much coffee. Oh. So early on when I was cupping this stuff, I would just drink it because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an idiot when it comes to some things. It's kind of like the, you know, sleep is a crotch and some of these other things. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to drink this stuff. And your heart, I, I've, I've had a few points where I think my heart is, might come beating out of my chest. And then what happens is you get too much and it makes you sleepy. So you hit a wall. Oh, yeah, man. I yeah, know that you wall, wall well. You know the wall. But you come back off the other side. What happens, you come back off the other side of the wall, for me at least, is, you know, you can't really drive through it. But, you know, you'll you'll go sleepy and then you'll make – sometimes I'll take like a five or ten minute nap and then I'll come back out of it and I'm just as wired for just as long. So caffeine, obviously, it takes you a long time to metabolize it. I think it's up to eight hours, depending on how much. So if you're drinking it all day, what I like to think is I can just acclimate myself to just crazy amounts of caffeine, and eventually I'll just power through it. You know, um, Yanni, I don't know if you know this about old Yanni, but he can't drink regular coffee anymore because it's his ticker. Really? No, he's decaf only. Man. Are you decaf only? 
Yeah, it triggers uh, a severe ventricular tachycardia. Really? Yeah. How long has that been going on? I, I saved his life. Three years. <laughs> Three years? You saved his life? Yeah, I had to save his life one time. How did you do that? I had to drive him to the doctor. Really? Yeah, he's having heart trouble. Wow. That's a, so you owe... Is it, <laughs> he, you owes his, owe... He, he owes his life to me. Wow. Steve Steve might be exaggerating the situation <laughs> a little bit. Who else is who else is going to drive you down there? Yeah, I drove him all the way down there, middle of the damn night. Um <laughs> With all the uh what's your take on what's going on right now, man? Like with all the psychologically, you know? Like like with all the I imagine that you had to learn how to deal with a lot of stress. Um is business stress and family stress its own brand of stress or is just do you view stress as is just stress no it's its own it's a, it's its own stress there are different you know. brands yeah it's heavier so depending on the type of stress it, it carries more weight for me so light stress for instance would be uh like a violent engagement which sounds crazy, you know, be like, Oh, violent because it's, it's, you're in and you're out, right. Mm -hmm. You're done. Mm -hmm. The, the, the psychological weight of what's happening right now, because the, 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 the cross pollination of, of anxiety between all of these different aspects of your life, between the company, between your family, between you, like this is a, a big, heavy circumstance that I think we're all living in. Um, it, it it weighs it, it it it's it's one it's heavier two it weighs more heavily on my psyche, which means I have to spend more time uh, compartmentalizing different aspects, and then essentially what I do is I, I I try to compartmentalize and then tick off priorities against how I can solve to decrease the load of stress if that makes any form of sense. I mean, no, it does, it but well, like a, I, no, I'm, I got you, but walk, walk through it, walk through it a step or two. <clears throat> um, so from my perspective, you have concentric rings of responsibility that you have to ultimately uh, take care of in order to be more effective as you move out. So myself, I have my internal stress, which is compounded by the family and then the business. So what I have to do is I have to say, okay, what are all the things that I can do individually to make sure that I'm taken care of as far as, you know, did I get enough sleep? Am I eating correctly? Am I taking care of all the things that I need so I can be psychologically comfortable solving the, the, the more complex problems? Then, okay, what does my family need? My family needs stability. They need a plan. They need, so that becomes finance, it becomes food, it becomes a laundry list of different items. They need leadership. Uh, when I say that, I've got to be plugged in in a positive influence to the family. So I can't wait, I can't let any of these things affect me to the point where I'm not the, the cornerstone of responsibility for my family. And the way that I can do that is by plugging in and being positive every day, like, you know, propagating love and, and, and understanding that my kids and my wife need me to be the guy that's, that's the catalyst to nothing but good, right? I can't bring any of this negative shit into the house. 
That's my responsibility. And then what I have to do is I have to balance that weight again and say, not only can I not bring any negative things in the house, I have to be the positive injection of influence across my entire family. So I'm way more engaged with my kids than I have been when I say I'm always engaged with my kids, but my kids get like a thousand percent dad right now, which is I got little ham radios for my kids and I'm, you know, doing radio checks and we're doing like fishing and we're more active in the garden and I'm getting up in the morning and I'm like supercharging them like tickles and stories, the things that mean a lot to them, but yeah, sometimes, yeah. sometimes you don't get to them on your regular work cycle. I'm making sure to hit all those boxes now because they need me to be that guy that makes sure that they're not effective negatively in any way as far as their, their psychology. They're three and six. They can't feel the weight of this fucking thing. You know, um, it's interesting you bring that up because earlier I was like taking some jokes at my own expense about sleeping right now um, and how much I've been sleeping. But to give a little more uh, depth into that, it was it, there was also a little bit of a conscious decision there where I do better. Um, I do better as a dad when I don't drink at all. Um, yeah. And that, I don't, I, I, I never drank to the point where like you like you get drunk around your kids. Never, but it would be um, the hangovers. Yeah. Right. And, and hangovers really the first thing that takes a hit is my patience when I'm hungover mm-hmm. and then lack of sleep takes a hit at my patience and focus. And so and talking about how I've been sleeping a lot, it was kind of conscientious to sleep a lot through this because it's a lot of stress and I just thought I'd do better with my family if I was well rested, which has kind of been being true. But we had also have been spending a lot of time talking about um, this will be a, our kids are at a very young impressionable age and this will be a thing yeah. that this, this will be a thing they talk about for forever. Yeah. Just because of where they're at in their age. And and we Well that's interesting. I was just thinking that my kids by the time they're eighteen, it'll just be like this little blip in their early yeah. childhood. How old are your kids? Uh, uh six and eight. Okay. Yeah. I think that the like the year that they didn't go to that they got pulled out of school and were homeschooled and there was like it was introduced this idea that you have to introduce to them that that there's without trying to use these words that it's dangerous to go into other people's houses right now, right? To not go super close to your friends. To uh, if you go to the river launch to put in a boat that you don't go over and talk to the dude fishing, right? I feel like this is gonna stick. I feel like it'll stick. Um. And so we've really tried to, like me and my wife as a couple a little bit, have tried to talk about how much uh, we early on a few weeks ago hit on like that we're going to try to switch to, I think I talked about this last week, we're going to try to switch to more of a, a need-to-know basis yeah, with our kids and um, give them the information they need day in, day out. Mm-hmm. But not uh, not spend a whole lot of time talking about different projections from different models and what this might mean, and you know, just try to keep it normal. But there's a lot of not normal. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of not normal, and I, at least for us, you know, we've just decided 
we don't talk about it. So we don't talk about it around the kids. We don't talk three and six is, I think it's a little bit too young and they can already sense that things are wonky. And, you know, when, when, when we look at it as a, when my wife and I talk about it, it's at night. So we talk about it at night before we go to bed and some of the things and how it affects our life. Um, but, you know, as kind of going back to where what I was thinking about earlier was I have to go self for the most part first and then family, make sure that my family's taken care of and I can start taking care of the company more effectively. Because once those boxes are full for me and I'm very kind of a, a linear thinker in that regard, if I've got everything kind of checked across the board and I'm psychologically comfortable being you know, a leader and a positive influence, then I can move to the next one. And then I go to my company and then I go from company to the community. So I have to fill up every one of those and make sure that they're directly proportionate and uh, representing energy. Um, and I think that, and, and not only do I think, that's what I put out to my company too, is, you know, you have to take care of yourself, your family, the company, and then the community. The community is, is the last one in the line, but it's not, uh, it's not, unimportant to us. And we do have to directly consider how we can help others. And I don't want to get on a soapbox, right? But it's, you know, if we have psychological stability, leadership, and the things that we're plugged in and we've taken care of, then we need to be out in the community from my company's perspective, trying to inject more positivity and, and do good for the people that are in need. So my wife and I were literally just talking about this last week. We're like, we got to get down and donate blood. We've got to do some of these things that we know are really important um, that also impact the community outside of what we're doing just for the company. Yep. Uh, Yanni and I have have for a couple of years now, um, not because of any particular love for the company at all, but we've plugged up uh, – Starbucks via as being yeah. uh, a great alternative to Noez cafe or, uh, yeah. or Folgers crystals. Yeah. <laughs> and it changed. Like we feel that Starbucks via like fundamentally changed oh. the landscape for backpack backpackers and backpack hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm switching though, dude, but wa- yeah. walk me through your uh, hunting, your, your <laughs> walk me through your product line, man. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I, I actually did not bring this because we were going to be on the podcast, but I'm, that's what I'm drinking right now is Black Rifle Coffee's Black Powder. Um, Dude, that's a good and name. We, I spent a couple years on this. I, I, You and I were talking about it the other day where I, I didn't have a really a, a good instant option and it really annoyed me because I was taking competitors' instant options with me. And oh, that, that's was, got that's got to burn, right? Dude, it's it's horrible. I was I was doing I was doing the lightweight uh, fly fishing trip in in West Yellowstone, and I was carrying a competitor's coffee with me because I was more concerned with shaving the grams than I was <laughs> with mm-hmm. with making my own coffee. And so I spent a couple years really trying to work on my instant. Um, and I, I would say it is the best instant out there. Obviously, I'm biased. Uh, but I, it, it took me a long time. I had to go. There's only a few different companies that do what's called micro grinding. So they actually grind real coffee into the instant coffee. It's a combination of freeze drying 
in micro grinds that are ultimately put together to make the best instant coffee. Other instant coffees, a lot, they, they can be just kind of a, an amalgamation of different chemicals that make a, a taste profile similar to coffee. Yeah. yeah. So um, we really, when I say we, we spent a lot of time on this product. The other product that I came, came out with for backpacking, hunting specifically, was uh, tea bags. So the standard old looking tea bag, but we filled them with coffee and we've got a different filtration paper system. So you can dip it and create, you know, a dark cup of coffee or a light cup of coffee, depending on where you, where you want to land that. Uh, And then of course I've got like pour over devices and all these other things. I'm the guy that develops all those products for the, for the most part. When I say any product that you see from Black Rifle Coffee there's there's two names on the, the the lower right hand corner, and there's either my name, which is about eighty percent of the products, and then there's Matt Best's name, and and he's he's contributing a, a good portion of what we do in the product line as well. So I do all the coffees though. So I, I do all the coffees, hundred percent of any coffee. I profile it, I cup it, I I not only do that, but I cut I cup it against the specs every year. So I cup every one of our profiles against my original specs in my original notes that I developed some of these profiles in 2008. So I cup it against my original notes from 2008. To make sure you didn't get like mission creep or or drift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if there is, then it's intentional. I've changed it intentionally. And then uh, you guys got a good decaf for all Giannis here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We do. I do. uh, It's a decaf. Um. And we, we do it in a couple different options, but it's a Swiss water, Colombian decaf. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they, because of our marketing, they think we're just good marketers. I'm like, man, I'm, we have, I have a roaster in Nashville that I built last year. Uh, I have a roaster in Salt Lake City. We go direct to source. I've got direct farm relationships with the majority of my coffees. Uh, I have what's called Q graders, which are like roaster, ma- ma- roaster mast masters roast master there we go roast masters q graders in the company myself like so we we really take pride in those two things like roasting coffee and creating great marketing and then you know i think everything else kind of takes care of itself at the end of the day is there a decaf in the instant too no but there will be in september depending depending the uh you know as we look at manufacturing dates continuing to be pushed back uh, you know, based on shutdowns across yeah, the United yeah. States. I'm hoping that it's going to be in September. Like last elk season, I did a, um, a uh, it was a Costa Rican black honey, and I called it flying elk for elk season. Um, and this year I'm doing uh, flying elk 2.0 during elk season. So every year I kind of curate different coffees for different seasons as well. So they're, they're different. And I took one to Moose Camp this year, which was pretty, is, is, an, is an amazing co- a cup of coffee, but it's so funny because you're out in like, you know, an old trapper cabin with a bunch of, you know, salty guides and you're like hand grinding coffee and <laughs> bring it up to temperature. You're like, what are you doing, man? You just make some coffee. Come on. <laughs> well, man, uh, it's terrible that we're not, uh, like normally we'd be sitting there hanging out 
but we'll, we'll have to put that on hold. We could have a cup of coffee. We'd be having a out. cup of coffee together. I know. I, I love making it. So I'd be in there, like, in the studio, grunt, hand grinding oh. this stuff. Oh, I could, I could smell you, it. You man. probably weigh it per cup, don't you, Evan? I do. Yeah, I, I have a, I have, I have a, I weigh it every day, every cup. It doesn't matter what it is. So it's all uh, proper uh, water to coffee ratios uh, based on gram weight and also temperature of water. All right. We're gonna look. <laughs> I just lost half, no, half you your didn't. audience. You didn't. I'm just being mindful. No, not at all. I don't mean that. I just mean I'm just disappointed because I'd like to. Well, I want to hang out. I want to hang out sometime and do something fun. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm just feeling like psychologically, I'm. Uh, we called our last episode. Uh, I miss my friends. Um, <laughs> it's just. I didn't realize that it would be so hard for me, but it'd be cool. Yeah, I'd like to meet you sometime and hang out. I appreciate you coming on the show. I would love to. I, I mean, two more seconds of my rambling, but I'm a huge fan of the show, guys. Like, I, I love what you guys do over there. Um, you know, I watched like Das Boat. I think I was telling you the on via text. I was like, that's the best show. My daughters watch it. Uh, so, either way, like, I, I mean, I'd love to hang out with you guys. I, I, I it's a huge honor to be here because. You're, you're, you're creating some of the best content on the internet. And I don't say that to hardly anybody uh, ever. Thank you. So, but yeah, man, uh, enjoy your time. So you're holed up in Texas. I'm holed up uh, for the, at least the next uh, six weeks. We're going to just flat the curve with the family. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here in San Antonio. I'm going to be hunting with, uh, with my daughters, pretty much hunting and fishing every day with the daughters and making sure the company stays on the tracks. Good. Have a good turkey hunt tonight. I'll try. Well, I yeah, can't wait to get luck. back up there, you guys. I'll uh, I'll definitely try to hit you up so I can come in because I'd love to see you guys in person. Yeah, we'd like to have you. Our our opening day of turkey season is getting um, ramrodded by a snowstorm, but we'll see how that goes. So, oh, seriously? Yeah, it's bad. It's been beautiful, man, but like Saturday just goes to hell. So we'll, we'll climb out. We have a long season. We'll be good. Good. All right, thank you well, very thank you very much yeah. for coming on. We're gonna re as soon as this all this bullshit ends, we're gonna reschedule you and get you up. Man, I can't wait. I I would love to. Thank you. Thank Evan you. Evan Hay for everyone. Black Rifle Coffee Company. Oh, should we find out where we can get some black rifle, Steve, if we wanted to try some out? <laughs> yeah, give me a give me a pitch. Or tell people uh, how to tell people how to find you. Yeah, go to blackriflecoffee.com. Uh join the club. There's no better way to experience Black Rifle Coffee than joining the Black Rifle Coffee subscription. There it is. Well done. There it is. Okay. Thank you very much, man. Thanks, guys. See you. Bye. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.